Explore the history, relationships, expertise, and data that go into ensuring Stein growers get maximum yield potential. This is the Stein Seedcast. Here's your host, David Thompson. Hello, and welcome to the Stein Seedcast. I'm your host, David Thompson, National Marketing and Sales Director for Stein Seed Company. We've got another great episode lined up with special guests, expert insights, and discussion on everything you need to know about maximizing yield potential. On today's episode, our special guest is Ben Aldrich, a research scientist for Stein. Welcome to the show, Ben. Glad to be here. So Ben's made his career in data analysis and research, and he's got an extremely diverse background in biology. Everything from aerial phenotyping to molecular assays, data analysis, and a whole lot more. Ben helps our breeding teams identify higher-yielding corn and soybean genetics every day. Today, we're going to learn all about Ben's scientific background and the work he does to help us build better seed genetics for our grower customers. So let's get started. So Ben, we're going to get in-depth about the work that you do here at Stein, but I thought for starters, just tell us how long you've been with Stein and kind of give a, a quick synopsis of what you do here. Yeah, I've been here five years now. I do, I would say, I'm split between 50-50 kind of operational work and kind of purely um, research-related work. I'm on the operational side of things, I'm kind of running up our aerial phenotyping work, and so that's for anybody that doesn't know, using drones to do some of the work that we used to do by hands, uh, getting maturities, uh, stand counts, plant heights. And so now we're switching over to using drones for all that. I have a background in genetics and molecular biology, so I do a lot of our marker work. I'm involved in that process, looking at like what disease-resistant traits we have in our various lines, how pure are the lines, are they still segregating, that kind of stuff, all the way along the process. Yeah. And, cool. uh, ba- and I also, uh, myself and Mark Eby, work a lot on setting up what crossing we're going to do every year. So at the beginning of the season, we're setting up what crosses we're going to do for the next season based on the new lines we have. And then, like I said, the other 50% is just pure research, just trying different things, trying to see if we can make the process better, make better soybeans. Just like the hallmark around here, wearing many, many hats. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so now, correct me if I'm wrong, you're native to central Iowa here, where we're headquartered, right? That's 100% correct. I grew up and graduated from ADEL, okay. ADM at the time. Yep. So yeah, just right down the road. Actually, my mom's house is just <laughs> maybe two miles from the farm, I think, okay. right there in ADEL. So. Yeah, cool. Local boy. So when I was preparing for the podcast, Ben, I looked over your CV and honestly, it was kind of staggering when I looked at the depth of the research of uh, and the different variety of different research. I mean, I saw everything from veterinary to entomology. I even saw anesthesia on there yeah. <laughs> and overall yeah. biology and, and seemed like uh, kind of a specialization or at least some emphasis on the cornea, right? Or the eye yep, or something. So. That. I don't even know what to make of all that. So I wondered if you could give me an idea and just kind of sum up some of that extensive research background that you've got. So it's t- not a lot of people can make sense of it, but <laughs> but when I was doing it, it made sense. And I, it just, I mean, I always knew I wanted to do research. Like there was something that excited me about doing research. And, you know, it started off in grad school. I did start off in entomology and I worked on uh 
termites and but I also worked I had some side projects doing some ag pests uh, soybean stem borer and Indian meal moths different things like that and I liked entomology but when I was leaving to go do my postdoc I I liked the genetics I liked the molecular biology but I just wanted to do something that was more applicable to like understanding how these genes are working. And so that took me as a logical next step into anesthesia (laughs) and, um, you know, started doing that for years. And then I just kept doing things, working at the University of Iowa for about 15 years. I'd teach classes on the side. I just love doing research. And I kind of had this professor tell me once upon a time, he's like, if you see an open door, just walk through it and see what happens. And that's kind of where my research career took me. I just, I'd see an open door and I'd just kind of walk through it. And I got to do a lot of interesting things. And, you know, I'll expand on it, but, you know, all the things are kind of tied together. You know, once you know genetics and you know molecular biology, it doesn't matter if you're studying soybeans or an elephant, it's the genetics is the same, you know, fundamentally. Once you have that skill set, you can apply it wherever you want to go. And that's kind of what I've done since I've come here. Well, that's a fantastic point. One that often gets overlooked is, you know, they're all the same bases, right? So it doesn't matter what animal you're looking at or, or plant, uh, we're all made of the same foundational elements. So as you look over that, I mean, I guess, what are what are some of the more interesting projects prior to coming to Stein? Mm-hmm. What are some things you worked on that you're especially proud of or, or even are just like, wow, that was really interesting to be involved with? I'll tell this story because I think it helps highlight how you can relate different areas that you never thought were, you know, applicable. And so back when I started doing my postdoc in anesthesia, I was studying chronic pain at the time. And and what we had developed was a model for studying chronic pain using fruit flies. And so I know that sounds out there. And, and it, <laughs> okay. it, you're, you're, so just bear with me for a moment. And so Flies are like any other organism, especially animals, that if it gets too hot, too cold, it's not good for them, right? So they've developed, you know, sensory organelles that enable them to sense super hot heat so that they'll avoid them, right? Well, the beauty of a fruit fly is they're super easy to manipulate genetically. You can knock out genes and you can do it transiently. So you could turn them on and off at any point in time. And so the problem with a lot of mutations are they're lethal, right? So with a fruit fly, what you can do is you can leave that gene on and then when you specifically want it to, and even at a specific set of cells like a neuron, you can turn it off whenever you want to. And so what that enables you to do is go in there and just start screening different genes and looking for genes that were involved in basically temperature perception, right? And what it turns out is fruit flies are actually very similar to humans. So the same so the same um, ion channels that your skin has when you feel like noxious heat is what they call it or painful heat, those fruit flies have the exact same ones, right? And so what you could do is use fruit flies and you could start manipulating them genetically to determine what is underlying the sensation of pain And so as I was doing that project, like it's sensing pain is one thing, but what about developing chronic pain, right? So chronic pain, say for instance, you get a burn on your skin, right? Right. And you touch it. Well, it's more sensitive. Like heat is, it feels worse than it really is. And so I basically developed this model where I could actually inflict what was kind of chronic pain in these fruit flies so that they were now more sensitive to temperature 
than they would be normally. So like a lower temperature was actually, they would respond to it like it was painful and as opposed to whatever. So okay. uh, so I kind of tell that long story just because, you know, a lot of people, do, when you talk about chronic pain and fruit flies, nobody's really thinking about that. <laughs> right. But the idea is, is that you can kind of take these things and apply them to different areas and kind of once you know that background, I mean, I've had so many different projects that have been applied to, I mean, even things like we're doing with the aerial phenotyping, I kind of did a similar project on termites using multispectral imaging back when I was in grad school and so forth and so on. And so you can kind of take these things, some of the genes that I was looking at, microRNAs, and you can kind of apply it to now soybeans. Well, that's and, and that's a great point. And it's interesting you're talking about chronic pain or, or, the, or the stress receptors. Reminds me of, you know, some years ago we were talking about in our corn program finding these plants that were, you know, good for high population, but they were also found to be good for stress. And you probably heard that you've already made this connection before I even tell the story. But we, we got to talking about the fact that, you know, stress is stress, right? It doesn't matter if it's, you know, too hot, too cold, if you have a headache or what causes a headache. It doesn't matter. It kind of turns on the same reaction in you regardless. And so hearing your story now makes you think, yeah, you, you, so now you can look at those pathways and start to understand how that helps not only fruit fly, but moves on to all kinds of other things as well. So yeah, it does tie together, I guess. <laughs> that's amazing. <laughs> so, okay, so that's that leading up to your time here. You know, one of the things in our organization we talk a lot about is the Stein story. You know, Stein has a fantastic story and we love to tell customers, but every one of us has our own Stein story story. Just curious if you'd share your Stein story and how you came to be in this organization. I knew of Stein growing up, of course, you know, where I, yeah. being in the neighborhood and stuff. And, you know, like I said, I'd worked for the University of Iowa for about 15 years and then life brought me to the area. And it really started out very simply, I just called. I just called <laughs> and I was like, hey, I'm going to be moving back to the area. I bring a specific skill set that I think you guys can use. And they said, well, yeah, probably. <laughs> and we, there was no defined job. There was no, there was, there was nothing. It was just like, well, come on in and we'll see what you can do. And, and I got in there and it was a two-way street, right? It wasn't just me selling myself to Stein. It was Stein, you know, selling themselves to me too. Like the fit had to be right. And so when I got in here, the, the, the thing that got me right away was the attitude of, of everybody around here. And it's that, you know, a problem comes up and it's like, well, what are we going to do? How are we going to do this? And everybody will say, well, I don't know, but we'll figure it out, you know? And it's that mentality of there's no excuses. There's no, well, I don't know, you know, I don't know this. I don't think we can do this or I don't, we'll just do it. We'll get, we'll figure it out. And that happens all the, I got a shout out to Ryan Maine, who is in soybean research. I drop some stuff on that guy that's pretty out there. <laughs> and he's always like, yep, uh, well, we'll figure it out. And it's that attitude because it's a successful attitude, right? It's that it doesn't matter. We'll get it to this successful point it needs to be at. So, <laughs> you know, it makes me laugh because that is a story that is all too common in our world where we tend to latch on to the people who have something to offer, hmm. even if we're not quite sure what we're going to do with them yet. <laughs> it, it's about finding quality people that fit the, the, the team, right? And so it sounds like you were uh, fortunate to show up at a time when it made sense for us and certainly sounds like you've brought 
brought a lot to the table. So <laughs> now I want to talk a little bit about some of the things, different projects you've been doing for Stein. Here again, I'm at a bit of a disadvantage because I'm not sure I even understand all these things. But I, I thought I kind of made a list of some things that I saw uh, on your listing. And, and I thought, well, let's just step through some of these things and maybe you can kind of explain to our listener what some of these projects are. One of them you already mentioned earlier briefly was aerial uh, phenotyping. So what is what is aerial phenotyping? Yeah, I mean, it can do a, a bunch of different things. I mean, there's a bunch of different applications for it. Primarily for us on the soybean side of things, it's all getting maturities. I mean, we used to send guys out in the field and they'd measure, okay, well, when is this plot maturing? When's that maturing? Now we just send one guy out with a drone. He images it in, you know, takes 20 minutes to image a field. We stitch the image together and then, you know, basically can quantify, you know, when these plots are maturing. And that helps us, you know, place the material in the right test. So we're making sure that the things are, you know, in a common test are all maturing about the same time, where we plan it, stuff like that. And also to track, you know, once we get down to, you know, marketable products, then what is the true maturity of this? You know, how much data do we have that we know this? is maturing then, you know, stand counts and stuff like that. I mean, it's all just taking images, some of them, you know, just color images for some of the things we do, multispectral images. We're starting to do a little bit more work with that. There's, you know, data out there that says that you can predict the yield of soybeans or corn using multispectral imaging. And, and we're starting to explore that a little bit and, and see, you know, can we just... You know, can we use this technology for things like that? We're always looking at, can we use it for different diseases and things like that? But it all comes down to just drone imaging. And I think Tyler DeBay had touched on that in an earlier podcast a little bit. Just, I, I think his comment was the idea being, we're not necessarily looking to find the absolute winner in every trial, but if you could even weed out yep. the losers, you know, uh, the bottom 100%, 50% of how far you'd be, yeah. right? Yeah, so that's that's really, really interesting. Yeah, because we have way more material than we can possibly put in the ground. I mean, that's just the reality of it. And so if you can cut off even just a little bit of that chunk, it helps you put more better stuff in the field. So. And talking about, you know, this uh, particularly maturity notes, I do know from my past talking with folks on, on the soybean side like Rodney Penico and Doug Beavers and things, you know, at that stage, because we're mainly talking about trial work, right, you know, one of the biggest enemies is time. Like, like being physically able to get all the work done in that period of time that you have. And you brought it up. It was a great point that I think in the back in the day or even still to some extent today, you know, manual taking of maturity yeah. notes would involve, you know, you get five or six of you, you go out to a field, you're going to spend the morning walking the field, making all your notes. And now from your description, you know, we take one guy, goes out with a drone, shoots it up in the air, and they 20 minutes, they've got that image. And, uh, the algorithm kind of does the rest. Yep. So talking about a time saving. Oh, of, absolutely. Of an astronomical degree, yep. it would seem like. Yep. Interesting. Next on the list, I said had molecular assays. Now this is getting really deep in the weeds, but what what does that involve? Yeah, and we do a lot of marker work on our lines. Um, part, of, I mean, there's. There's a couple different components to that. Early on in the process, the marker work, we're looking for things, uh, for reasons to kind of get rid of material, like uh, because cells happen during the crossing process. Sure. And and so the marker work helps us identify cells that weren't true crosses that we made, and we can kick those out of the system. So, and, and just for purposes like what you're doing at that point in markers mm -hmm. is really look, detecting the presence of 
a gene of interest or something that you're yeah, looking for? Yeah. Um, in essence, we market for several different things. Some of them are disease-resistant characteristics. Some of them are phenotypic characters that it is so like at the F1 stage, you wouldn't be able to detect because they're heterozygous for that. So by doing the marker work, you can get a breakdown of, of the parental components to that. And like I said, for us at that stage, it's just simply looking at, okay, well, based on the parent's genotype, we would expect the offspring to be this. Well, if it's not, we know something went wrong. Make sense? And and also at the same time, we also produce more material than we really want to put out there. And so this lets us look at it and say, okay, well, we have we have this population here and it has, you know, at this stage, it has these disease-resistant characteristics. And then there's something that's comparable over here that doesn't. Well, at this stage, let's get rid of this stuff that, you know, is missing SCN resistance or, you know, just as an example um, and keep the stuff that does have that. And so it's just kind of basically trimming our list a little bit as we go along through the nursery process. Yeah, because when you have 1.3 million plots, yeah. Yeah. you're just looking for a way to cut the, yeah, <laughs> cut yeah. the number of points a day you got to look at. Yeah, I mean, the, the number of crosses, the number of novel crosses that we do every year is staggering. It is staggering. And if you think each of those could eventually de- be derived into a number of different independent varieties, it's a lot. <laughs> that number gets big, very big, very quick. So... How about genotyping? Yeah, I mean, in fact, so this, the molecular assays, the genotyping, and then the next one on your list, sorry to jump ahead, but they're all kind of kind of related. I mean, genotyping could be, you know, you're just looking for a specific set of, of genetic combinations that you want in your plant. But, you know, it also goes bigger than that. Um, we use it for patenting some of our varieties on down the road, you know, once we establish them. But you could also... It could be looking at, you know, a whole number of different genes that kind of characterizes a plant. And that could be used for a bunch of different stuff. Like I talked about marker-assisted selection and breeding. We tend to not do a bunch of that. Um, We certainly explore it and look at it. And there is a little component to it, but mostly that's related to disease characteristics. You know, looking at certain things that we want to basically increase in our in our populations, right? You know, certain disease-resistant traits. Um, SCN resistance is, you know, a prime example. Everybody wants it, and, you know, we have to make sure that that's in our material and stuff like that. So to some extent, we make some of our crossing decisions and stuff like that based on the genotype of the plants. But it could be even more complicated. I mean, what they're doing now and a lot of places are, are employing is, you know, they're taking these plants and they're genotyping them for 10,000 SNPs, and this is going to get super deep, so hold on. <laughs> and, and they're looking at 10,000 and snips and it, it characterizes that plant and then they they look at okay well how successful was that plant or what genetic combination gave us the best plant and and then they're using neural networks or machine learning then to tell us okay well now that we have all these snips and we know what the best is well what if we cross these two lines that's going to give us our optimum plant right and so they're using you know like i said machine learning neural networks to do all this type of stuff and we certainly explore that too. We look at it. I would say that with the volume of crossing that we're doing, it's tough to beat putting stuff in the field. It's <laughs> really hard to beat putting it out there and seeing who wins, you know, because the, the the one drawback of all these types of technologies and stuff like that is how much data you're putting into them, right? Weather conditions, soil conditions, disease pressure, rainfall, you know, and so what the winner is in the computer model could have been from two years ago. You know what I mean? But this year, there's just not <laughs> enough data. And, right. and do you really even have all the genetic information that you actually need? 
And that I would say is from what I know is it, it's tough to be able to account for all the underlying genetics in an organism. It's just, very hard. It's just a little, a, a lot of ground truthing and just, you know, the, the old process of uh, planting them all and yeah. keeping the heavy bags. It's tough to, I mean, it's, <laughs> it's tough to argue with that. You know, if it wins in the field, yeah. who cares what the computer tells you? <laughs> right. So. so you talked earlier about, you know, data analysis being a, a significant <laughs> part of your job. Yeah. And so... I can only imagine that there's probably a, a huge amount of work that you do on that side of things. And, and what kind of what kind of data? What kind of sources? I mean, I mean, what are the different kind of pieces you're putting together to draw this picture? Well, so okay, so beyond the other things, I have a background in statistics, which is probably probably gets me drawn into more projects than anything <laughs> else, even yeah. with. Even outside of soybean research, I think my uh, my background in statistics gets me called into a lot of different things. But you know, the beauty of the when I walked in here is you guys have like thirty years of data, you know, just sitting there in a computer waiting to be mined, right? And it just takes somebody knowing how to do that, right? Identifying you know, applications, computer programs that you can go through and sift through all that data. I mean, one of the first things I kind of did when I first got here, I didn't know anything. I mean, I knew nothing. And I start, came in here and I was, I was looking at the disease traits that we have, right? And I started to ask myself, well, okay, how do these different plants perform if they have or if they do not have a disease-resistant trait, right? Like, I mean, I'll just throw one out there, root knot, as an example, right? If a plant has resistance to root knot, well, certainly that would help that plant if there's root knot the present. present yeah. But if there's not root knot present, how much yield drag do you get associated with that? And I went through all the different iterations. I looked at just, and I mean, even phenotypic traits, you know, does uh, pubescence impact things like that. And I just started doing that. And, and what I found was there's so much untapped data here, just sitting here that, you know, when we talked about our aerial phenotyping stuff, you know, one of the guys was talking about, you know, feeding some of this um, yield data into some kind of a neural network and, and, you know, looking at weather conditions and this and that. And I was like, well, you know, Somebody should tap in because we have years and years of, of yield data. And we put a lot of plots in the ground, a lot of plots. And I was like, that's a valuable resource. And so I just, you know, something comes up in my head and I, it's this research scientist in me. And I ask a question. I was like, and it always starts, I wonder. And then well, I'll figure it out. And so I start digging into it. And half the times I'm wrong which is just part of the process. Like being wrong is absolutely nothing to be discouraged about because it always takes me one step further somewhere else. So That's what research is all about. Yeah. <laughs> Got to be humble because you will be humble. <laughs> you mentioned some of the departments. I mean, what, what are the different departments within Stein that you interact with on a day-to-day -day basis? Yeah, I mean, primarily I'm soybean research okay. um, predominantly. And then you break it up, and within soybean research, I'm from one end to the other, you know, the nursery side all the way up into the yield trial side. And uh, I work with corn a little bit here and there. They bring me in on stuff. Um, we're kind of collaborating on this uh, aerial phenotyping stuff like that. Um, also, with their molecular work, I get kind of pulled into that every now and then, too. But, uh, gosh, I there's... Hardly any place here I haven't interacted with in some capacity because somebody says, oh, well, 
go ask Ben what he. <laughs> and, I, and then uh, there you go. Now I'm working with marketing or say, you know, I just. I think we've asked for your help right, from <laughs> a time or two. I so. think so. <laughs> I think so. Well, cool. Well, so I guess you think about all of your background and in, in research and statistics, you know. We talked a little bit earlier about that. I guess I'm just curious how that helps you in your role here. Yeah, I and I, the the word that I came up with was adaptability, and this is something about being a research scientist because it always pulls you in a different direction. Like you always start a project knowing in your head where you're going to go with this project and what you're going to see. Like you have a pretty good idea what you're going to see. And then you're going to see something else. And then it's going to pull you in another direction. And you have to be able to adapt to that. Like you have to be able to say, okay, well, now that I see this, I've got to pivot and I've got to go down a different line of reasoning. And so that's the beauty of this place is, is that I get things thrown in my lap that I'm, I'm like, oh gosh, I don't even know what I'm going to do. I don't know how I'm going to solve this problem. I don't know what I need to solve the problem but you always figure it out. Like I know there's always a way to figure it out. I just have to find the right resources to answer that question. You know, maybe it's maybe it's I have to call up some professor working at Iowa State or Purdue and ask them, okay, guys, you got to help me out a little bit here and let them kind of push me in the right direction. And once they give me a little bit, I could usually Start, figure yep. it out from there. So Yep. Good. Is there any particular aspect about your role and the time that you've been here that is most surprising to you? <laughs> yeah, and I don't know if I should say this, but it's actually been decision-making. Like, I was, I felt very early on that I was given sort of a leadership role. Like, and I I didn't expect it, right? I, I expected, you know, that I'd have to be here and kind of cut my teeth for a while. And, and that, that certainly does happen, but, you know, what I find is everybody around here is very open to, you know, somebody else's thoughts and opinions on stuff. It's like, hey, you know, you're, it doesn't matter who they are. It's like, come in here, say what you say, what you see, and let's talk about it and stuff. And so, yeah, I was, I was given quite a bit of responsibility that I really didn't <laughs> anticipate, you know, it, it, that quickly. And, and I, I loved it. I mean, it was, it was awesome because then you have ownership. And I think I see, that so much around here is when new people come in, it's like, let's get them some ownership of something. Like, let's get them, you know, involved in some project, taking a lead on it. And, and once you do that, you know, it just, it draws them in and they want to stay and they want, you know, they're excited because they're in charge of this. And um, I think it's a just a very healthy way of doing things rather than, you know, well, you stay and you just, you know, crunch numbers for a while and we'll get back to you, you know, so. Well, especially on the soybean side, for sure, there's so many uh, extremely talented people been with us for <laughs> such a tremendously long time. And so it's no question you'd feel like, oh, I need to, need to kind oh, of yeah. bide my time. Oh, yeah. But it's, but it's great that they see the value in that and, and, and uh, put you, put you in that great position. So. Yeah, that's what, when I said I've worked here five years, like I'm a baby compared to <laughs> a lot of the soybean research department. So Yeah, yeah, for sure. So we've talked about a whole bunch of different things as far as what you do. I guess what would you, what would you want our listeners to take away from this conversation and understand about what you do uh, for the company? I think my primary role here is to 
as a research scientist, and it should be probably any research scientist, is to is to challenge what we're doing, right? To to not just kind of accept things the way they are, to say, okay, is there a way that we can do things better? And I think everybody here has that attitude. I just bring a specific set of skills that sort of enable me to kind of question them differently. You know, the way somebody else might go about, you know, figuring out, coming up with better crosses. There's a there's a hundred different ways you can do that, right? Genetics, you could do other types of phenotyping work, plot, different plot configurations, replicates, all that kind of stuff. And so that's the one thing that I have been very, very happy with is they let me just mess around and let me come up with the most harebrained research idea. And they'll say, yeah, go ahead and try it. And I do. And like I said, I fall on my face more times than I'm successful. But that's the great thing is like you have a group of people here that have been making killer soybeans for years. And they're like, well, maybe we could do better. We don't know what we don't know. And so they're willing to give it a shot, you know, and see what happens. And like I said, I've been given the ability to take my background in genetics and molecular biology and, and so forth and statistics and everything else and just trying to apply it to, well, is there things that we could try to do things just a little bit different. Like if we could make it, you know, it, like you talked about with getting rid of the bottom 5%, right? Well, that's 5% more plants, good plants, better mm-hmm. plants that you right. could put in the field, right? If we could just raise the market, I mean, we're not going to reinvent the soybean right now. It's doing it at the margins, right? Increasing the margins, you know, make yep. that gain better every year. And instead of a, you know, a 3% yield gain, let's shoot for six, you know, that kind of stuff. So. Yep. Yep. I think that's the way of doing it. Okay, good. So, last, you know, for any of our listeners who may be curious to learn more about some of the different kinds of things we talked about today, are there any resources <laughs> online? I mean, it sounds like something you can't necessarily teach yourself, but if they really were curious, are there research things out there that you've been interested in or anything that you could point them to? Yeah, I think, and actually you got me thinking about this. It's been a, it's been a while since I published a paper. And I was thinking about that when I saw this question. I was like, gosh, darn. <laughs> Maybe I should write a paper with some of the stuff we do around here. I know we could do it. Like, we do enough interesting stuff that there's no reason we couldn't organize it into a research paper and submit it to a national journal. Absolutely no reason. There's good work. There's good data behind it. <laughs> Plenty of replications. So so that's, you. Yeah. I'm kind of upset you asked me that question <laughs> in a way because now I'm like, thinking about it. But no, for resources for people, yeah, all the ag stations, Iowa State, you know, any of the major ag universities, uh, land-grant institutions who put out research reports, they're doing cool stuff. And it's interesting to pay attention to. You know, they all do, you know, some of the ones, uh, Iowa State does stuff with SCN trials every year they put out. That's interesting material just to see where stuff's at. Um, we actually work with uh, North Dakota State University doing IDC work that they publish every year. You know, I think for people, especially, you know, for farmers out there, if you're interested, you know, want to see, you know, how things are doing and maybe you want to look into IDC, uh, different IDC line, that kind of stuff. I mean, all that information's out there. There's plenty of stuff to read. And they do these little quick synopses, which are very well done for the layperson in that they 
put it in an easy to understand format for people and stuff. So they'll, you know, researchers who come out with a new discovery and stuff, they'll they'll have a quick write up about it and what the bigger picture of that is. And it's an easy way to digest that kind of stuff. Oh, good. Good. Thank you. Well, when you write that paper, maybe do I get a byline or, <laughs> there, or there you go. You maybe a footnote a, or something. You can be a co-author. There you All go. you have to do is do some editing and... Oh, no, forget it. <laughs> uh, well, anyway, Ben, you know, really enjoyed having you on the show today. I knew this would be a really interesting topic. There's always been a lot of cool things going on at Stein, but it sounds like you're bringing an especially renewed focus to some of the, some of the great research work that's happening, and it sounds like we've got the right man on the job. So I want to thank you for stopping by and talking to us about the role you play in helping us develop high-yielding seed genetics here at Stein. Yep, thank you. It's been a pleasure. Well, that's our time for today. I'd like to thank our guests and our listeners for joining us on another episode of the Stein Seedcast. We'll be back again soon with more expert interviews and insights about all things Stein. And to never miss an episode, subscribe to the Stein Seedcast wherever podcasts are found. Subscribe to the Stein Seedcast wherever podcasts are found. To learn more about Stein and its elite corn and soybean genetics, visit steinseed.com. Stein has yield.